I'd like to show you why knowing your why is the start of your journey. Without a strong why, it can be so difficult to reach your maximum potential. My name is Dr. Jason Ballara, and every week I meet with real estate investors and mindset specialists that are taking action in order to build a life according to their own terms. We will break down what drives successful people and allows them to achieve at such a high level. If you are a professional wanting to break through, or simply someone that wants to hear an inspiring story, the Know Your Why podcast is made for you. Hi everyone, I'm Jason Ballara and this is the Know Your Why podcast. Today I'm here with Bryce Stewart. Bryce is a former elementary school teacher who retired from his W-2 at age 35 through real estate investments. He has written an Amazon bestseller, House Hacker's Guide to the Galaxy, and he went from $50,000 in debt to a multimillionaire. Uh, he's also the husband and father of four daughters, which I can see by the pictures behind you, Bryce. That's maybe your most, most proud accomplishment. But uh, yeah. first of all, thanks for, thanks for coming on the show today. I, I really appreciate your time. It's my pleasure. I hope for your listeners, we can give them some good value. Even one or two uh, lessons can be a pivot that changes your life. I know that yeah. personally. So I'm yeah, absolutely. Your Based on our conversation before we even started recording, I feel very confident that we'll have <laughs> at least one or two. Um, Bryce, why don't you start by telling us your your background kind of, uh, I already sort of, <laughs> spoiler alert, you used to be a teacher, but Let's talk that through kind of your background, how you made that pivot, and uh, and then we'll go from there. Yes, I'll give you the uh, most compelling part first. So at 23 years old, I had just graduated college with a, an education degree and did not have a job. So I did what everyone at age 23 does. I moved back in with my parents um, and I was living in my high school uh, bedroom, or, you know, the bedroom I had when I was in high school. And the, the difference was my dad was charging me $300 a month in rent because he said, now I have a college degree <laughs> and I, I started working a job. I also foolishly um, got into, got a, a car that I, uh, was more expensive than I needed. So I had my school debt and I had a, a, a loan on a, it was, what was it? A, a Nissan Maxima which was too new and too fancy for a guy in my uh, position to um, <laughs> someone without a job. It's a, yeah, right. Yeah. I mean, I had a job at that point, but it really didn't justify the next harm still. Right. Um, so I was working for actually a uh, insurance company. Um, I started working for them just because a friend of mine was doing um, grunt work in a renovation that they were overseeing for their offices. And I helped out on a per diem basis. And then, they liked my work ethic enough that they eventually uh, moved me into uh, helping to try to sell their services, which it was a um, it was a title insurance company that was trying to expand. So this was 2003, uh, 2002, 2003. So I didn't know anything about real estate. Uh, I didn't know anything about working uh, or being a good employee or anything like that. I was just trying to make some money to pay my parents $300 a month. Uh, to keep living there. So what happened was um, I met another guy who was 23 years old uh, at that job. And as we got to talking to each other, he asked me where I lived. I rather sheepishly said, I live with my parents in my bedroom. And when I asked him where he lived, he told me that he and his college roommate had purchased a four unit apartment building and that they lived in one of the units and that they rented the other three units out. And I, 
literally could not understand what he was saying. It didn't make any sense to me um, because actually I grew up in suburbia mostly. And so I had no real mental concept for uh, apartments other than the apartment that Jerry Seinfeld lived in on television or that Joey and Chandler lived in. Um, <laughs> and so when I thought apartment, I thought that's what an apartment is. And I really thought only large companies owned apartments. I didn't understand that an individual person could own um, an apartment building. So when he said that they owned an apartment, I didn't really believe him. I was like, what do you mean you you own it? Like you guys own the apartment? And he said, yeah, we own it. And I said, isn't that expensive? Like, isn't there a really high mortgage on it? And he said, well, it's not a low mortgage, but we use the rents from the other three apartments to pay the mortgage every month. And at that point, I knew enough to also ask, well, isn't there real estate taxes and insurance? And he said, yeah, we pay those, pay those with the rents from the other three apartments. And I'm like, well, I, I, I still couldn't really understand what he's saying. So I, I'm like, well, there's got to be a really high water bill or like electric bill or something. He's like, honestly, the tenants pay that directly to the utility companies. He said, but if I'm honest, we actually pay our utility bills with the excess rents from the other three units. And I was like, wait, 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 you mean you guys are living there for free? I'm paying $300 a month to live in my high school bedroom and you guys are living there. And he said, well, it's better than that. We actually get $200 in our pocket each month as spending money over and above all of those other costs. And Jason, I was floored because it was the first time I, I had really heard or met anybody who was making money from something besides their job. Yeah. I didn't understand that that was a possibility. I was a little bit angry because no one had given me that model. I just thought right. the way you get rich is to have a really high paying job. And I had already kind of resigned myself to not ever being rich because I had chosen a, my 19 year old self had chosen a college major that did not have a very high uh, compensation. Sure. And so that was for me, that was the first light bulb moment of wait, someone who's really not that much smarter than me, a 23 year old is making money from something besides their job. And I want to know how to do that because I don't want to pay my parents $300 a month to live in my high school bedroom forever. <laughs> right. That's not, <laughs> that's not an enticing rest of your life. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I think here's the thing, if you're listening to this and you're just starting, I think that's actually probably the best sort of, um, uh, microcosm or best best way to simplify it to look at it is that these guys purchased an asset that was producing income greater than the cost of holding the asset and that really at base is what it what it means to invest in real estate or, or to invest in any asset hopefully if you're doing it the right way is that you own something that produces income excess income and that um you're, you're able to perhaps scale or buy more of. And so, but at first, Jason, my 23 year old self, that was the first real transition. And it was a huge one from people make money when their boss pays them to people make, can make money just by owning stuff on their own. Yeah. It, it's a huge light bulb moment, right? For, yeah. I mean, any, <laughs> because as, as we've talked about this a lot on the show, but nobody teaches us this stuff. That's big. That's the point of these podcasts. That's the point of, you know, people putting out content on social media, educational content is 
this, I mean, it's not, it's not a part of the education system really at any level as to how to make, how to make a living without just working for someone else. Yeah. And, um, at that time in my, in my mentality, it still seemed like that guy was a superhero and that I was just some average Joe and that he had done something that would be way too hard for me to do. Um, that's what it, it seemed like to me. The, the very real reason was I understood enough at that point to know that you needed a down payment to, to buy something. And I could not generate or save up enough cash to go and make a down payment on something like a a quadruplex or a four unit. Mm -hmm. And so it still seemed impossibly large for me to do what this guy had done because, um, I wasn't making enough money to save it up. My parents weren't ready to get, you know, equip me with a down payment. And um, I wouldn't have really known how to do it, even if they had given me that money. It would have, I would have probably made a bad purchase or something like that. So, um, and for those of you who are listening to this, um, I would say my instinct when I hear people who are super successful is to just be intimidated and overwhelmed at their success. I, I often want it. I want to have the same level of success that they had, but it just feels like, well, that guy's so, so far ahead of me or they're way smarter than me, or they got in, um, before, you know, they got in before the door closed and now I can't do what they did. So if you're hearing that, if you're hearing me right now, I want you to silence that emotion and, and keep listening to, to how you can approach it in a way that's actually doable for you. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Limiting beliefs and imposter syndrome are a very real thing that I think all of us and anyone uh, transitioning from another career or or even just being young and wanting to get started. I mean, we all have some level of limiting belief. And so you're, you're 100% right. You have to kind of quiet that noise and, and push forward and, and realize that, you know, people can do it, right? You, you did it. I did it. It's people can do it. It's so it's, and it's not. Yes. But let me, I'm going to be the voice of, of your listeners right now in their heads. If they're like me, here's the voice that goes on. You, you think either that's too hard for me or that person, you know, has access to resources or knowledge or expertise that I can never have. Or the other thing that you tell yourself is, the amount of work involved in getting to the level that they're at is so great and would disrupt my current life so much that I'm just not willing to make that trade. You know, I could go through all those steps, but why, what a pain in the, in the neck. Um, I don't want to have to do all those sacrifices to get where they are. So between the two of those, that's what usually freezes people is one. Yeah, I could do it, but I don't want to work that hard. Sounds awful. Or I could never do it because I missed the the window of opportunity or expertise or privilege or whatever it might be. So those are the, for, for me still, even when I hear, hear people who are doing things I don't know how to do yet, that's, those are the, the voices that go off in my head. I could not do that. I don't know how to do that. I could figure it out, but man, I'd have to stop spending time with my kids and my wife and, you know, right. jump in. So I want to give you the cure for both of those uh, mentalities or voices, if you're listening to it. And, and that's this. I would say take all of the free steps that are in front of you 
um, that don't cost you anything and are not a huge time investment and and then and therefore are are either low risk or completely risk free and wait to decide on whether or not you can be like that person or like me or like whoever wait until you've taken an incremental step and you have a better perspective perhaps as you get um, farther along the uh, the road or to put it this way if you're at the bottom of a set of stairs uh, and at the top of the set of stairs is a doorway with light shining through it. Don't say to yourself, is that a doorway that I want to go to go through when you're at the bottom of the stairs? That's not the time to decide. Go up the steps, look in the doorway and then decide, is this a doorway that I want to go into? Most doorways allow you to walk up to them, look in and then make a decision to either turn around and go back down the steps Yep. Or to swing the door open, whatever. This analogy is falling apart, but to walk <laughs> through the door and, and to go into it, and just emotionally, what I want to say is take the the really small steps, and, and and save the decision for later instead of making it an all or nothing decision right now and putting a huge amount of pressure on yourself before you're even willing to take the first step on the staircase. Right. Does that resonate with you, Jason? I don't know. Maybe, maybe you can relate to that. Maybe you were in that scenario before. I'm not sure. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it does. I think, you know, there's, there's a lot of things that you can do to figure out if it's right for you. And it's like, I mean, really you could use this analogy for just about anything in life, right? You're anything you, you, you think you might want, uh, you know, there's probably some steps you can take before you get to that point of, you know, kicking down the door and walking through, but th there's two, I, I guess, one thing is I would just add to that is don't get stuck in that, you know, analysis paralysis. Cause that also happens to people a lot where they're if, to continue with the analogy, you're standing on the stairway for forever and never really making a decision. The other point to that, I would add is that the, the, as you're, you know, going up that staircase, the, the goal should be to figure out, if we're if we're strictly speaking real estate right now, there's so many different niches. Start figuring out which one works for you for the capacity that you have, right? So if you look at those, you know, those counter arguments to taking action that you made, look at, okay, what I should be figuring out is what fits into those limitations that I believe I have. Are the and and I say it specifically that I believe I have because we all think we don't have enough time. We all think you know, that it, it can't be added, but it's, uh, it's, it's not going to be easy, but normal life isn't easy. So if right. you want to figure out, you know, if you want to do something hard, you might as well do the hard thing. That's really, really going to get you ahead. And maybe the hard thing is passively investing. Maybe the hard thing is, is doing, uh, you know, short-term rentals. Maybe the hard thing is house hacking because you don't feel like having a roommate, whatever it is, right? There's, there's those steps that you can take. So I, I like the analogy. And I think my only thing is I don't want people to get stuck on the stairway. That's my, yeah. Well, that's yeah, my, that's why, but the, um, realize that a lot of the steps are completely free. Mm -hmm. They are risk-free and that you're preserving the opportunity to walk away. So, and that, that will destroy this huge emotional wall of I, real estate's risky or, you know, my uncle, right 
uh, lost his shirt in real estate. And so I have to decide right now, am I a hundred percent into this or not? And I'm saying that's not, you don't need to put all that emotional weight right. on, on the first step. Just take it. It's free and go see. Let me give you an example. Um, I had a 20, uh, no, a 19 year old who approached me a few years back and wanted me to mentor him in, in real estate. And I agreed because he was marrying um, my wife's and my uh, babysitter for our daughters. And so I had a vested interest in his success yeah. um, because we loved our babysitter. Um, and he came to me and he he opted not to go to college. So he's working a job that was did not pay him highly. And he's rubbing pennies together. And he just felt like, you know, he kind of understood the what I described to you already that, you know, there, there are ways to make re, uh, money in real estate aside from your job. And, um, but he, he didn't have enough money for a down payment. And he came to me wanting to know, can I, and should I invest in real estate? And so I told him, yes, absolutely. And I made him start doing things that were completely free, but that I knew he would need to, to have experience in to be as successful as a real estate investor. So the first thing was I printed out an agreement of sale. I live in Pennsylvania. So I, I found the Pennsylvania Association of Realtors Agreement of Sale, just a blank um, PDF online. I printed out all 19 pages and I told him, take this with you, read it five times. And on the fifth time through, circle or highlight the, the parts of it that you still don't understand. And then when you come back to me, I'll go through those parts with you and we'll talk about what they are. And I said, if you don't do that, don't even bother coming back here. You're not serious. You're not committed. And I don't want to talk to you anymore. So to his credit, he went and he did that. He read through the whole thing. He came back and had a lot of it underlined. Um, and I went through with him and explained to him, here's what a mortgage contingency is. Here's what a, you know, um, due diligence period um, is. Here's what a, uh, an appraisal contingency is. Here's uh, FHA uh, allowances. Here's, all, you know, and so if you're going to transact in real estate, you have to understand that stuff. So I understood it was a necessary step for him to be well-versed in what you're doing when you're offering on real estate. He, he was looking for a deal to get into, first of all, and he wanted to, he didn't know that he couldn't skip that step. And he didn't know that, that he needs to not rely on other people to understand the contract. He actually has to understand it. Right. So that's a great example of, it was a very free step for him. It cost us all of the ink and 19 pages of um, <clears throat> paper for him to go and get well-versed in, in, in that. And it didn't cost him anything. I made him start making offers after that on properties that were for sale in our market. And he was terrified because he did not have a down payment ready. And, and financially, it actually wouldn't have worked initially for him to have that offer accepted. But I told him, you're making low offers. The worst thing that could happen is that you get your offer accepted. And now we have to figure out how we close on an under under market um, or, or, you know, under list. Contract. How do we close this great deal is a, yeah, is a good right. problem to have. Yeah. It took me a real long time to get him to understand that. <clears throat> um, in the meantime, he was going to, um, to doing showings with an agent that I knew personally and was willing to take him around. Um, and he was learning things like that. There's a difference between a boiler and a furnace uh, a furnace pushes air, a boiler circulates water. Um, both of them are sources of heat in Pennsylvania for houses. He didn't know that. That's important to know when you're buying a place. 
Um, some places only have electric. There's a, an inverter outside, and, and that's how you get heat and, and air conditioning. I think people so, not like, from the Northeast don't know that. I think right, that's yeah, like, like also being from the Northeast, like that's very, that's a very common thing. But yeah, I, yeah. I find that people in other parts of the country have no idea what I'm talking about when I use those words. Yeah. And people south of maybe Pennsylvania don't even need a carbon monoxide detector because nothing's being combusted uh, inside <laughs> of the, you know. Yeah. Uh, so here's the thing. He made like 10 offers, uh, maybe nine. And he was so frustrated that they all just got rejected. And he, so after all, you know, I went on maybe one or two with him and I told him, I'm not going on these with you anymore. Walk it yourself, you know, figure it out. He came back so frustrated and I was like, do not be frustrated. You are getting, as a 19 year old, you're getting real estate 101, 102, 201, 202, and you're getting it completely free. This is an education for you that's gonna be so valuable long-term. And by the way, none of your peers are doing this. They're all, they're all looking for a red solo cup uh, you know, on the weekends at whatever <laughs> college that they're going yeah. to. And, and so this is valuable. It's important. And this is, this is worth hundreds of thousands of dollars, what you're doing right now. And he, he didn't really believe me, but it is, you, you need to know that stuff to go through it. And for him, it just cost him, you know, gas to, to drive around, um, the goodwill of the agent showing him around, um, and uh, I told him, if, if I told you your 20th offer was going to be accepted, what would you do? He said, well, I, I guess I would try to make 19 offers very quickly. And I'm like, exactly. I'm like, I don't know if it's going to be 20th, but it's some number. And so, right. and you're not going to get it unless you make all these offers. So uh, the other thing, and for your audience here, this is why I'm pointing it out is he kept trying to think before he was even willing to go on to, to, to do a showing, he kept trying to decide in his head, do I want, is it a viable option for me to be a real estate investor as in my potential future? And I kept saying to him that you don't need to answer that question before you go to this showing, you're putting too much weight on it. Just decide you're going to go to this showing. And um, the time for him to decide am I going to be a real estate investor is after he's made an offer and then received maybe a counter offer from a seller. And now he has to decide, am I going to sign the counter offer or am I going to walk away? That's actually the time when you have to decide, am I going to be a real estate investor? When you have sitting on your desk or in your inbox or whatever, a counter offer from a seller and, and you're obliged to execute the contract if you sign the counter offer. Prior to that, there you, you shouldn't try to decide whether you're going to be a real estate investor. So, people who are real estate investors now understand that that's the time when you make the decision. People who aren't think that they have to make some massive life decision before they even start looking at stuff, and it's just not true. Don't you know? Cut the watermelon up before you try to eat it. Don't try to swallow the watermelon whole. Yeah. And um, so, and for him, that's exactly what happened. And and you know. If a place, if a triplex in Allentown is being sold for $200,000 and you offer $190,000 and the seller comes back and gives you a counteroffer at one ninety-five, dollars think for a second about what that means. It means to the rest of the general public, that place is for sale for $200,000. For you, it's for sale at one ninety-five, and you have sort of an exclusive option to, that you can um, exercise to go ahead and follow through with the purchase. 
I view offers as essentially options contracts on, on purchasing real estate. If you can get it exclusively under contract, there's plenty of ways to get out of a contract to purchase after inspections, after appraisal, whatever financing falls through. What you cannot do is go and get a contract out of somebody else's hands after they've put a place under contract. So it's an important option. To, and I think about it like an options contract. Once you get it, you can either go through with it, you've preserved that right, or you can you know, look through the door with the light and decide this isn't for me and walk away relatively unscathed. Yeah, yeah, 100% true. And it, it's, I mean, I get, you know, the, the there's going to be those fears. There's going to be that, you know, well, what, you know, well, what if one of these gets accepted? And it's, I think everybody goes through that, right? Cause, cause yes, then you do have to make the decision. Like, is this, is this really something I want to do, you know? And, but it's, it's a good decision. It's a good position to be in, to have to make that decision. And so until you've, as you said, like until you've signed that contract, it's not, it's not, you're just learning. It's just a, it's just an education process. Right. And I'll point this out too. Not, none of the steps are bench press 300 pounds. Okay. And none of the steps are reverse dunk a, a basketball. Um, <laughs> right. uh, although I used to be able to do both of those things, I can't anymore because I'm too old. <laughs> um, and for some people that was just never in the cards. Right. Right. So I want to encourage everyone out there that each step is actually, and this is true. Each step is actually as easy as driving to a, a showing or, you know, it's not, it's not physically hard to sign a contract. Right. And, and e each of the sort of subsections of a contract are not like, um, they don't require a law degree. You just, it's, it's a small thing that you're understanding and doing, and it's not really that hard. Each step is just easy to do, you know? Most of them you could do even as a paraplegic. <laughs> so I'm sorry to say it like that, but that's just the, the steps themselves aren't hard. They're just, you have to accumulate them and then they become something powerful when you've, when you've gone through each of them. Right. Right. Yeah, it's exactly true. So um, back to my, back to my story. Yeah, I was going to say, I heard that's, from, that's, yeah. <laughs> after I heard from that guy, um, it was, here was the first small step I took. I cornered that poor guy in the lunchroom and I asked him, how did you even know how to do that? Like, nobody explained that to me. How did you figure it out? And he told me um, that he would bring me a book the next day. And he did. It was Rich Dad, Poor Dad by Robert Kiyosaki. Um, and he gave it to me the next day at lunch. And I devoured the book in like a day and a half and read it. It felt like I was breathing pure oxygen. Um, <laughs> It, it was amazing to me because I really, there was no one I knew who had ever explained the stuff in that book. And, and if you've never read the book, it's not an overly granular um, guide to executing the purchase of real estate. It's more of a 30,000 foot view of um, this is how rich people think. And, um, and it's even apparently mostly sort of apocryphal. You know, upon closer inspection, Robert Kiyosaki admits that he made up a lot of the attributes of his rich dad versus his poor dad. But so it's more of a parable to explain mindset and possibility. But it was one that I needed. And, and so that book was the first 
you know, seed in my head of, okay, this is something normal people can do. And I'm at least normal. So maybe this will be in my future. So fast forward a couple of years, I ended up getting a teaching job. Um, I got married in 2006 and uh, my wife and I bought a luxury one bedroom condominium as our first home. Um, we bought at the height of that market, 2006. And in two years, um, we were pregnant with my uh, first daughter and the world was crashing around us in 2008. And it was then that we realized we had kind of overpaid for this condo. We owed $155,000 on it and similar units were selling for $85,000. And so we were underwater by, what's that, 70 grand um, with no ability to pay for that to, to make up the difference. We were in a one bedroom condo and, and pregnant. So we wanted to move out because we thought it was not, we, we wouldn't be able to raise a child there, which was probably true, but we couldn't sell because we were underwater. And then we, I figured out then I we can't even rent this out for the, the cost of holding it every month. So on the way in, I hadn't really quantified, you know, the, the principal and interest and mortgage, uh, real estate taxes, insurance. And then it was a condo. So, um, HOA fees, I just kind of thought of those as like bills, like, um, right. discrete bills, like your utility bill or something like that. And while we, my wife and I were both working and didn't have kids, it was fine. We just paid those bills. I didn't really think about it. Um, but when we looked at moving out, I realized, Oh, this place costs $1,400 per month to own in unavoidable fixed costs, mortgage, taxes, insurance, HOA fees. It costs $1,400 a month. And at that time, the highest rent we would be able to get was $1,100 per month in renting it out. So we couldn't sell, we needed to move, and we were looking at losing $300 a month when we moved out at the very time in my life when we were having a kid and my wife was looking at probably reducing her hours with her work. And I was like, oh, this is bad. Um, so that was my first real estate investment. You and a whole lot of other people at that right. time. Yeah it, was, yeah, it was brutal. It was a bad start. So what we did is we moved out and we started renting a two bedroom apartment. We found a fairly cheap one, thankfully, for like 850 bucks a month. And then we just ate it. We lost $300 a month. Uh, I got a good tenant, but even with a good tenant in there paying every month, we were still losing money. Yeah. Um, and I'm in a third floor walk up two bedroom apartment. And four months after my daughter was born, I came home from work one day, walked up the steps, opened the door. My wife is in the middle of the living room floor, uh, bawling her eyes out. My newborn daughter was crying in the crib. And I asked my wife, what on earth, what's the matter? Are you okay? And she looked at me and said, I'm pregnant again. And, um, and I was like, oh my gosh, this is awful. This is terrible. This is where it all ends. This is, <laughs> this is why whatever, this is why I shouldn't have gotten a degree in education. I should have gone into finance or pre-law or pre-med or something that would have, yeah. <laughs> cause I, as a teacher, there was no way for me to make a, a like that meant very, to spell it out for you. It meant my wife was going to need to quit her job cause she was going to have two infants and it meant that we, in very short order, went from two salaries and two mouths to feed to one salary and four mouths to feed. And the one salary is a teacher's salary. So I was in dire straits. This was 2008, 
um, 2009-ish, and uh, we were in real trouble. You know, we couldn't sell the condo. We were underwater on it. We're losing money. And now I'm looking at losing my wife's salary completely and trying to figure out how to piece it all together. And this one thing people don't think about with teachers, they already have a low salary. And I was a public school teacher. On top of that, teachers need to pay in about seven and a half percent of their um, of their absolute income towards their pension contribution. So long term, it's great to have a pension, but short term, it means you have to live on even less than what your absolute salary is because you're yeah. kicking into your pension every month or every paycheck. So that was my uh, that was my successful real estate investing career up to 2009. Um, at that point, I had I started brainstorming just by myself. I should have gone and gotten a mentor or gotten help or something. But I, I thought about that got the book that that kid had given me when we were both 23 years old. Um, and I thought I got to do something like that to, to help, help us get the income that we need. Right. And so I started looking around, um, at that point there was some, uh, I remember I pulled up to a red light on my way to work. I saw a for sale sign in the front yard of a, of a row home that had two mailboxes on the front porch and, uh, two, uh, electric meters on the side of the building. And I thought, Aha, I bet that means it's a multi-family property or multi-unit. And maybe that's maybe we could move there and I could do what that guy had done in, in college. So I on the way home from work, I called the agent. I asked for a showing. I didn't I didn't even know what I was saying. I was like, is this a, I don't know, multi-family property? Is that how you say it? <laughs> She's like, yeah, that's what it is. So she walked us through it. It was awful. Um, it smelled like cigarettes and cat piss. Um, and it completely demotivated me, but she put me on an auto email list for any new listings that hit the MLS. And like a month later, a really nice duplex recently renovated came up and my wife and I went and looked at it and we were like, this is gorgeous. It was a, a three-story row home that had been converted into like a two-story apartment on the second and third floor. And then a separate entrance, um, uh, on the first floor, one bedroom apartment for people who are just getting into it. The, when I quantified our mortgage, real estate taxes and insurance, the costs were about $1,200 a month. And then the rent from the first floor was $600 a month. And so I did the very quick calculation of like, all right, we're paying eight fifty a month in rent. But if we bought this place, I would only need to kick in $600 a month towards the our housing because the other $600 would be from the tenant. And on that basis, I was like, we can't afford to not go forward with this. Yeah. So that was our first place. And that again, sounds simple, stupid. If you're a real estate investor listening to this, you're like, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. All right. I get how that works already. But if you're a newbie and listening to this, that's kind of, that's still the baseline consideration for acquiring real estate is does the, um, does it generate, income in excess of the cost that it that it requires and that's why our, our condo was a, a bad purchase because on the way in i didn't quantify how much does it cost to own this versus how much can it generate in income yeah and so most people for newbies, don't. that was it sorry go ahead <laughs> most people don't most people don't buy their their primary residence thinking what if something happened could i rent this out yes you know, what would that would it what would that look like on, you know, from a, a financial standpoint, most of us don't, you're like, 
you're just excited to buy your house. You're, I mean, this is going to be mine. Right. I'm going to own it. But it, it's a good exercise to do and say, okay, well, what if, what if I had to move for whatever reason, you know, a job, health, something could I, and I couldn't sell this. Could I, you know, rent it out for enough to you know, kind of support, support the, the, the expenses. So it's actually a really good uh, suggestion for people. Yeah, absolutely. And I think what we did, so we bought a multifamily property as owner occupants. I still think that is hands down the best investment that the average person can make in their lives. Here's why. We bought it with an FHA loan. Okay. If you don't know what FHA is, it's a three and a half percent down payment loan. And you still get really good financing terms through the FHA um, on a 30 year amortized loan with, with residential um, interest rates, which typically are lower than commercial interest rates for borrowing. And what you're doing is you're using a very small amount of money, three and a half percent to acquire an asset that's a multi hundred thousand dollar asset and long-term will functionally be an investment grade asset. There's, you can't really do that in any other way um, with any other investment vehicle. And so for us, it it was the only investment we could make with a teacher's salary that was going to build us wealth long-term. And what that meant is it was, uh, I think $175,000, but it meant that my three and a half percent down payment entitled me to all of the appreciative gains of a multi-hundred thousand dollar asset. So within a year, my the property value had gone up more than what my initial investment was. So I essentially had a 100% return on investment within a year, plus all of the cash flows that we were getting from the first floor apartment, which helped at that time to defray our cost of living. So, and then also the debt had been paid down a year's worth. So the mortgage, the the principal and the mortgage had been paid down. So we gained equity, we gained appreciation, we had good cash flow from it. And those are the three things that really make real estate in general an attractive investment. And for us and for any normal person walking around, it's still, I think, the best investment you can make. And I think there's a lot of them are coming up after this next real estate shakeup where if you're young, if you're trying to figure out how to be an investor or how to supplement your income on the other side of whatever this V looks like, there's going to be opportunities to do what I'm describing. And it's life-changing. Yeah, absolutely. Well, so you didn't, you didn't retire from W2 doing this one time. No. So what, (laughs) what, uh, where did you go from there? So the the (laughs) other thing is with FHA loans, um, you can only hold one, at a time. Um, and so we moved into that place. We, after a year and a half, we refinanced out of an FHA loan and into what's called a conventional loan because our equity position had changed enough that we were able to get a conventional mortgage in place. And actually we lowered our monthly costs, uh, our monthly absolute costs because of an interest rate deduction to $1,100 per month, what we had to pay. And we re-rented the first floor apartment um, after a year and a half at, I think, $800. So what that meant is for us, it was a, we lived in a very gorgeous apartment, the second two floors, but it now was costing us $300 a month to live there. And that's when I was like, oh my gosh, this is an insanely good way to for my wife to not, you know, for me not to worry about my wife not bringing in money anymore. Right. 
Um, and then I realized we could do this again. Um, there's no obligation to revise your owner occupant financing in an asset like this when you move out. So I didn't know that at the time, but we, we kept in place that 30 year fixed conventional financing and started looking for another owner occupant multifamily that we could move into and sort of rinse, lather and repeat. So I told you that um, we were living there for $300 a month. I, we found tenants to rent our apartment for $1,300 a month. So their first $300 of rent payment paid the remaining monthly cost. And then we were making $1,000 a month after we moved out from the you know, net profits of that duplex. And I used that to, we moved into a triplex after that. And that $1,000 from the first duplex actually was paying our mortgage payment in the triplex that we lived in. And now we were living there in essence for free. And then we got the rents from the other two units in the triplex that were just all cash flow and gravy for us. And so within three years, we owned five units and the cash flows being delivered by those five units was about uh, $3,000 per month. Um, and so when we moved out of the triplex and bought a normal house, finally, we had enough kids that we needed to do that. I didn't want to do that perpetually, but I had five units. It was actually the triplex was right next door to the duplex. And so I had five units in one location, fairly easy to manage that was throwing off about $3,000 a month in excess profits. And it meant that even though I was a, occupationally a teacher, you know, that's attorney level uh, compensation when you, uh, and so in very short order, because we were willing to live in our first two investments, it meant that we were able to have a, a great deal of income moving into our first home. And um, that was my, you know, those were the, the first few lessons of my uh, real estate career. One was don't buy the condo that's not gonna cash flow. <laughs> and then two, for people who don't have a lot of money, the owner occupant house hack it's now called, um, is how to do that. So I detailed a lot of this in my book called House Hacker's Guide to the Galaxy. That term means essentially using your your primary residence to, to generate income. Um, and, and I kind of give every step that we took to get there, to get through that and to give ourselves, again, what was functionally investment grade assets that were giving us real income in our lives right then. <laughs> so um, not 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 long-term retirement um, income or long-term retirement savings. We needed something that would cash flow right now and help us to live our lives right now. That's the other beauty of real estate is that unlike a 401k or something like that, where it's a you know it's 40 years from now and who knows what your life is going to look like when you ever can see the profits from it, investing in real estate allows you to begin to improve your quality of life now. You can spend some of that money and have more fun now you can defray your costs or maybe have it take the place of your job now and not have to wait 30 or 40 years. And so um, what you're doing, Jason, in, in offering uh, syndications, the, the pitch is the same. It provides cash flow to investors now that they can use, that they can spend, that they could save, that they could you know, retire their wife or their spouse with. That's the beauty of real estate is that you don't have to wait for 40 years to enjoy the benefits of that investment. Yeah, 100% agree. And one thing, I mean, you mentioned that, you know, the cash flow, the appreciation, the principal pay down, all that. One thing that you 
you didn't even touch on that that is also very you know sort of compelling in all of this is the the, the tax advantaged vehicle that real estate income is it's not the same as your w2 income in terms yes. of the way it's taxed and so when you say that $3000 that you were making on rental income the the difference the, the big difference is you know if you compare that to $3000 that are made at a w2 level right. the amount of tax that you're going to have means that's a huge difference in in yeah. you know salary let's call so, that <clears throat> probably a 1.5 multiple is a good one to apply yep. so like an extra 3 grand a month in real estate income would be equivalent to like a $4,500 per month raise at your job right. in terms of the amount of money that ends up home. in your pocket at the end yep. of the year. And so yeah. what's, what's $4,500 times 12, uh, gosh, over 50,000, over $50,000. It would be yeah. like getting a $50,000 raise at your job, which at the time was more than I was even making as my salary. Um, and yeah, you're absolutely right. And it, it comes to you and you're not paying taxes on it. Really. Right. I st for the last 12 years that I've been real estate investing, um, my federal, uh, taxable income has been so low. It's just laughable. I barely pay anything in, in, in income taxes. Now, real estate investors do pay property taxes, right? Yeah. We, uh, but but your but tenants the, should be paying that basically. Yeah, exactly. Right. I'm paying it with the profits yeah. that I'm getting. So um, it's a great way to make extra income and you can't even look at it as the same way of getting a raise. It's actually much better than a raise. Yeah. It's better than a raise. It's better than get a, getting a second job. It's in terms of what you're actually going to see in your pocket. There's, there's some, some real tremendous benefits. And I think that's when I am talking to investors about, you know, uh, coming into a syndication, it, that's one of the things, you know, so the, the tax advantage na na um, nature of it, but also um, what you mentioned that, you know, kind of, okay, great, you're putting money in your 401k, maybe an IRA, maybe you have money in the stock market, but you can't, you can't have any of that money, right? You can't have your 401k or your IRA without a huge chunk of it being taken away in taxes and penalties. Right. But if you invest some money into a, a syndication or or whatever form of real estate, the idea is you're going to you're going to get money now. And the money in there, you're getting money while that value is still growing. So it's in when you hit retirement and you start to tap into that 401k, the way you get that money is by selling those stocks. And right. so then you don't have them anymore. Right. It, it's so if you've built up a portfolio in real estate at the time you're going to retire, not only have you been receiving cash flow along the way, now you have an asset that's actually increasing in value and you still are getting your cash flow. And so it's it's an entirely different and frankly just better strategy. It, it, but we don't learn that again. We'll go back to that concept. Nobody teaches us that. Yeah, it's it's a timely strategy, right? You you will probably need that money now, and not only that, but it's also there's some a very real um, um, concept called the opportunity cost of money. Yep. So if I offered you you know fifty thousand dollars today or fifty thousand dollars ten years from now, um, it would be far more intelligent for you to take it today because you could turn it into something far greater than fifty thousand dollars over the next decade. Right. Um, so. And with inflation, um, 
always being a factor. It means money is going to be worth less over time, no matter what. Mm-hmm. So there's, there's a, you want money now. <laughs> that's right. the, that's the way to, to prioritize it. And real estate does deliver that just to um, maybe you can comment on this as a percentage. When you're delivering um, let's say a preferred return to an investor who's investing in a real estate, that, real estate that you have, how much of that increases their taxable income and how much of it is just a complete, um, let's say zero cost additional income in terms of taxation? Basically, it's all tax-free because the those investors are going to participate in the depreciation the same as the uh, you know the general partners or the sponsors of those syndication deals. So your cash flow, that preferred return expenses or that preferred return uh, income is, uh, you basically it's it's all got you've, you're going to have enough in tax benefit in, from depreciation that you won't pay tax on that money. Right. I don't know the level of sophistication of your audience and whether whether it's worth explaining that to them or if it's already old hat for people. Real estate investors speak about depreciation and immediately we all understand what we're talking about. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's, people it's, who are new to the game they might not understand it or how it works. Um, but it's essentially a paper loss that you're taking, which offsets a very real cash flow income, um, again, on paper. So that, for instance, for me right now, my cash flows from my portfolio is about $20,000 per month. Mm-hmm. So let's call that a real like after-tax income of about $240,000 per year. That's a great living, especially where I live. When it comes time to report my taxes, um, the IRS forces me, forces me to take depreciative um, deductions on my income so that when I'm turning in my my tax returns, my adjusted gross income is extremely low. I won't give you the exact number, but it means that my family of six looks like we're poverty level uh, um as far as the IRS is concerned. And by the way, Mike, that bugged my conscience for a while because I was like, look, I'm a multimillionaire. I'm making this much cash flow. I want to re- I want to be honest. I want to sleep well at night and I want to report my total income and I don't want to cut any corners or make any ethical um, you know, shortcuts. And my my CPA was like, "Okay, look. You either take these deductions or you'll be penalized as if you had taken the deductions." by the IRS over the long-term. You must take these deductions and you have to take them right now. And I was like, well, if I have to take them, I guess I have to take them. Oh, well. <laughs> yeah. And so um, here, here's the other reason that that's important. Um, if, if you're listening to this and you're an investor, let's say you're a doctor or a dentist or a, an attorney, and let's say you have a spouse, and let's say you're done raising kids and you just sent the last one off to college or they're in high school now and they're fairly independent. And so your spouse is considering going uh, re-entering the workforce. Um, if one of the spouses is a high earner in their W-2, this was the case for my in-laws. So my, my wife's father was a business owner and, uh, and, and he owned an insurance agency. And after he started making a certain amount of money, my, my wife's mother was looking at going back to being a teacher. And their financial advisor sat them down and explained to her, if you go back to being a teacher, you will make less money than all of your peers. So the single girl who's a teacher, just like you're a teacher, 
she will be taxed at at the tax bracket of a whatever it was at the time, $40,000 income employee. But your $40,000 is going to be taxed at you plus your husband's whatever, $300,000. And now your $40,000 gets taxed at the next tax bracket up. And so you're making less than everybody else who's showing up to work at the same job that you are. And so their financial advisor's encouragement to them was, just stay home, you know, like don't, don't add to it. And my father-in-law, I think very wisely was like, yeah, it's worth more to have you essentially be the COO of our home in ferrying kids around and doing all these other things than it is for you to add to our taxable income, which we'll just get taxed more on. So the reason I say that is if, if I know it's not always the same choice, but if you had a choice between making an investment in a real estate syndication and getting an extra $40,000 $40,000 per year and having somebody go back into the workforce and making $40,000 per year, it's a far better choice to, to make that $40,000 through a real estate syndication because it doesn't add anything to your taxable income as a doctor, as a dentist, as an attorney. Yeah. And in the interest of time, we won't get entirely into this, but if yeah. you're, if you go back into work as something that qualifies you as a real estate professional, now the, the spouse, the second spouse goes, now you can start using those depreciation losses against the W-2 income. So we have talked about real estate professional status on the show before. It's something that I'm extremely interested in in my own <laughs> household. But uh, but yeah, it's there are some really, really uh, compelling strategies as far as um, being able to decrease your tax burden. So it, a great point though. Like, yeah, at some point it, it doesn't always make sense to go get another job or go back to work or whatever. Now, if you're doing that to put all that money into investments, okay, maybe so that with the long-term in, in goal in place, like you say, okay, I'm going to go back, I'm going to make an extra, you know, whatever it is, $40,000 a year, but I'm going to use that money and start investing it. So in five years from now, now I don't work anymore. And it's just, you have to look at all the angles is kind of what it, what I, what I'm getting at. And consult your attorney um, and your uh, accountant and Mm -hmm. blah, 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 blah. We're not fiduciaries for you. (laughs) All of the, uh, all of the uh, disclaimers. Yes. Yeah. Um, So that's why I love real estate and you get um, the difference between what I was doing, Jason, and what you're doing with, with folks is that I was doing it all by myself and I actually was on the hook for clear, cleaning out the gutters in the duplex, duplex uh, every fall um, and mowing the lawn. And yet um, when you get to a certain level, you can be a fractional investor in a large real estate asset, still achieve all of the benefits that you would have uh, that we had thematically, appre- the appreciation of a large asset, um, the pay down of the debt over time to grow your equity position, um, an, a preferred uh, income stream that's non-taxable and adds to your uh, monthly income. And you're, it's just a fractional way to do it because you're pooling resources to buy assets that would be too large for any individual investor to buy. And so multifamily, large multifamily syndications provide all the benefits I described fractionally without a lot of times at the same time, it it insulates you from the liability um, 
uh, of owning the, both the legal liability if anything goes wrong, and then just also the the, the pain in the butt liability of ongoing um, you know calls whatever. Yeah. So that's why I love it. It's a great investment on that basis. Yeah, and it and it's I mean that that kind of goes back to your your stairway analogy in that you have to find out what's best for you, right? And it and it may be it may be you know maybe maybe you have a job that that you don't you don't want to leave you like what you do you're making good money and so you're you know kind of on the passive side maybe maybe it's about where you live right i live in los angeles like finding a cash flowing duplex or triplex here is next to impossible it's just the, the costs are so high so sometimes but but if you're in you know I don't, um, Ohio is the place that pops into my mind, but there are other markets where you could probably still do that to this day. So it's kind of, it, it, there's a lot of factors that go in. And so you go and you do those free educational things and those free activities that can help you figure out what is your best use uh, and, and best avenue to be a real estate investor. I, I believe it can work for anyone in, it, in some capacity, right? Anyone can can be involved in real estate in some capacity that can be beneficial to them. Yeah. And let me point out, if you're in California and you know Jason, um, maybe you're a homeowner in California. Um, that means the value of your home is going to be pretty high. And if you're able to set up something like a home equity line of credit, which typically comes to homeowners at a pretty low interest rate, you can play an arbitrage game where instead of investing in California with that money, where you pointed out, Jason, it'd be next to impossible to achieve a good return. Um, and you don't know a single soul in Ohio, um, but um, you can invest in somebody who is in already investing in Ohio, has found a cash flowing asset, maybe a hundred unit apartment complex. And you don't have to know anybody there, but if you trust the operator and you feel like they're going into it well, then you can use California money to invest in Ohio cash flow, yeah. and and never leave the the state and never have to worry about it and be um, and retain all the benefits of a of cash flowing real estate without even having to leave sunny California uh, to do so. Still get to have all the uh, beautiful weather of <laughs> southern so Southern California. Yeah. Um, Bryce, let's let's switch gears so I don't keep you all day on a Saturday. But yeah. um, I want to get to the part where we get to ask you kind of the, the questions that I ask each guest. Sure. Um, first one is related to the name of the show being "Know Your Why." So, so what is your why? What what kind of drives you at this point? Um, you know, towards towards success. Yeah. Well, initially, because I as I related, my first why was desperation. Right. Just making sure that we were going to survive um, a growing family. Um, I needed for my own. The the first rent check that I got after we bought that uh, duplex where it felt like it was profit, you know, coming on top of it. That did a huge thing for me. It was it, it was the first time really that I had made money outside of my job. And it it for me, that felt like it felt like there was a huge brick wall in front of me. And for the first time ever, it felt like there was light shining through that brick wall, through a crack in the brick wall and the beam of light landed on my face. And I thought, oh my goodness, I could get through this brick wall before I had just built it up as that's impossible. The, the high income train left the station when my 19 year old self picked elementary education as my major. 
I had looked at that as being etched in granite as my economic destiny for the rest of my life. And when I got that first rent check, I realized, wait, maybe I can succeed at this. So there was some proof of concept. And so my next why became, how do I retire my wife so that she can raise our kids? We didn't want to put them in. We had, we, I have four daughters now, by the way, we had them in five years. So I didn't want to have my kids in daycare. It seemed like financially we'd be spinning our wheels. So the first why was have my wife raise my kids. And then after we did that, I was like, well, wait a minute. If I displaced my wife's income with our real estate earnings, it would only take a couple more purchases for me to replace my own income. And then I don't have to go and work 50 hours a week as a teacher raising other people's kids, which is exhausting. Um, and so my second why was to retire myself. Um, and my why at this point is um, I'm getting ready to probably hire a soup to nuts property manager. Uh, I've, my portfolio has been pretty easy for me because it's all relatively uh, close together. And I haven't had a W2 since 2015. So I have self-managed and I'm finally at the point where the cash flows are high enough that I could um, hire a property manager to be the one on the, on the other end of the phone every time that there's an issue. And it gives me 100% time freedom for my wife and my girls to travel, to take vacations, to, to do what we want to do instead of uh, meeting, me needing to be part of the machinery. So my, my first why was retiring from my job. My next why is going to be 100% time freedom, which is great for, for leisure, but it's also great for scalability. Yep. So um, that's what I'm, that's my next pursuit. Um, and, uh, and yeah, it's to spend time with my girls. My oldest is 13. Um, no matter how much money I make, I, I will not get the next five years back. Right. So I want to make them count. And I want to be there for my girls. I want to coach the, their lacrosse teams. I want to go to all of their swim meets. Um, I want to watch them in their plays. Um, there's not any amount of money you could pay me that I would want to miss that stuff. Yeah. So I'm glad I have the freedom to do that now and the flexibility. And, um, you know, it's it's been been great. So that's my why, or that's the driving force. Yeah, I I can relate. My kids are younger, but yeah, that is, that is it. I don't want to miss, I don't want to miss a thing. That's the whole, yeah. that's the whole point behind it is, is that time freedom. Um, second question for you, Bryce is tell us something about yourself that maybe isn't common knowledge, a special skill, a hobby, any, anything you're comfortable sharing. Um, gosh, I have to think about that. Uh, I'm uh, innately curious. I think that's part of the reason I've been successful. Um, even as I'm evaluating, uh, getting property management for my portfolio, I just keep poking into different ways of doing real estate, uh, asking different, uh, syndicators, how they operate, um, in some ways looking for <laughs> the Northwest passage, uh, in real estate. I think good investors tend to be intellectually curious and yeah. and then also just functionally curious for their own purposes. So that's me too. Um, another thing about me is I applied to seminary right before my wife and I were married. I got accepted, but because of my debt scenario, I didn't go. Um, and I've always had it in the back of my mind that if I got to the point where I had complete time freedom, that that would be maybe something I'd look into is 
how do I how do I leverage temporal income, right, for potentially um, eternal investment to to be about the business of things that are going to be enduring far beyond my lifetime. So that's how I quantify my life, and I'm getting to the point where I can begin to execute on that as well. Fantastic, fantastic. Um, when people hear this and they want to reach out, what's the best way? Yeah. So first up, my book is House Hackers Guide to the Galaxy that you can find on Amazon. Um, the email that I use for uh, people who are interested is BryceStewart79 at gmail.com. Um, I do mentor. Uh, I, I keep a fairly light mentoring schedule. Um, so if that's something that you're looking for. I'd consider it. Um, I also, gosh, I, I had a social media campaign lined up before COVID started. Um, and then we had my four daughters home for 18 months straight for 24 <laughs> seven. And I sort of abandoned it. I'm looking at how to get back into that at this point, but there's no financial pressure to do so. So I've been fairly lazy in pursuing it. Right. Um, right. Yeah. You yeah. can find me there. And then, um, uh, that's the, the way to get to me afterwards. Perfect. Final question. This is the, the big one. Uh, what piece of advice would you give to someone who is in your shoes, you know, kind of starting out uh, to, to get them to, to move forward, to compel them to, to reach the level of success that you have? Uh, find a mentor. That's my first one. Um, when that kid was asking me to mentor him, I was able to provide for him a risk-free uh, feedback universe where he could ask all of the dumb questions or model all of the most stupid strategies. And then I, without consequence, I could be like, well, that won't work because of X, Y, and Z. Yeah. And, and so what would, would, would have taken him years in a market scenario, I was able to provide all of the sort of out of bounds, end zones, goalposts, whatever, for him to sort of run through different scenarios in his head and me to be like, yes, that would, that would work. No, that wouldn't work. Um, that's illegal. Um, you know, that kind of stuff. It's an important one. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So I'll, I'll give you an example. He was like, why don't I buy something as an FDA and then not move into it and then go buy another one and, and not move it. And I'm like, because that's bank fraud. If you're getting an owner occupant loan, you have to move in and occupy it. You can't lie about your residency. Right. Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> you know, Cause you don't want to go to jail. That's the, right. you don't right. want your, your residence to be a jail cell. Exactly. <laughs> no, that's uh that's, that's great. Uh, and, and that, the, yeah, the mentorship route really, it's, it's, it's nothing that, you, you know, it, we're, we're normal people. Like there's nothing, you, you don't need to be like a, you know, Einstein to, to be a real estate investor. We're normal people. The education Almost all of it is out there, but having a mentor, someone who can kind of tell you those things that it's like, you know, am I going to be the one that outsmarts the system? You're not. This isn't like a get rich tomorrow thing. You 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 just have to put in the work and take the time. But having a mentor can shorten that time and shorten your learning curve. Absolutely. And I would also say as a teacher, right, when I was a teacher, there's no... There's no event in the career of a teacher that is a huge capital event. You don't get merit pay. You don't have a have bonuses. There's no commissions. Like there's no possible scenario in which a teacher hits it big in their job. Right. 
there's a lot of jobs like that too, where it's just, you're not in, you're not in a lane that goes, that has a high speed limit. So it's worth conversations with people who know how to drive a Maserati, you know, 200 miles an hour. And, and you, you owe it to yourself to at least look at opportunities in lanes where the speed limit is super high, because if you're hoping that some huge event is going to happen to you in a, in a 25 mile per hour residential street, driving a Toyota Yaris, um, it's, there's just no universe in which that happens. So get, get with people who are in the fast lane. And that, this is why I say it, get rich quick. Yeah, it, it, that, that is a different consideration than get rich easy, okay? Get rich quick is actually possible. It's not easy, it's, it's hard, but those two are not the same. People who get rich, by definition, they have to have some kind of uh, uh, exponential return in order to get rich. That's gonna be quick on the time scale by definition. So don't write this off. If you're listening to this, it's easy to think anybody who's advising this is just trying to make money off of it or whatever, but that's not true. There's plenty of people who have been on the path that they make money quickly in relative terms. It's not always easy and it's not always guaranteed, but at 25 miles an hour in a Yaris, I guarantee you, you're not going to make money quickly enough to enjoy it while you still are young enough to, to have access to it. Yeah. Yeah, hundred percent agree. It's a, it's definitely uh, get around people that are doing what you want to do, right? It's that that's kind of the the goal. Um, Bryce, it's been great. Uh, I appreciate everything that you shared. I think a, a lot of really insightful stuff, and I think especially this will be a great episode for people that are you know, just trying to think about how to get into the business, right? How to get, how to get started. Um, house hacking is, is really a good spot. Uh, they can pick up your book. It's, it's, it's funny. Cause I think, and, and I, I, I assume you'll agree when, when you were doing it, when you started out doing it, I, I started out doing it. It wasn't called house hacking then. It wasn't, it didn't have a, a fun name. It was just survival and needing to, <laughs> Right, needing right. to uh, needing to be able to afford the bills that's really what what it came down to but but luckily people more eloquent than me were able to put that in into uh, educational form so thank you for writing the book thank you for being here today and and uh, sharing your story i appreciate it my pleasure all right with that we will go ahead and sign out i'd like to show you why knowing your why is the start of your journey without a strong why it can be so difficult to reach your maximum potential. My name is Dr. Jason Ballara, and every week I meet with real estate investors and mindset specialists that are taking action in order to build a life according to their own terms. We will break down what drives successful people and allows them to achieve at such a high level. If you are a professional wanting to break through, or simply someone that wants to hear an inspiring story, the Know Your Why podcast is made for you.